All right. Well, Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. Great to see you in 2022. You guys look even better in this year than you did last year. So that's true for most of you. Uh, but uh, no, it's great to, great to see you. Great to be together. Also, like Kevin said, if you're joining us online, on live stream, want to extend a very special welcome to you. Thanks for joining us that way. And uh, specifically, I just want to say if you're a guest, if it's your first time to the Medina East campus, or if it's your first time back, if you were with us at Christmas Eve and you're rejoining us, uh, we just want to say thanks so much for being here. Welcome. We're glad that you're able to be with us and uh, excited for a new year. And with a new year, we actually are kicking off a new series. And so if you are a guest with us, you came on such an awesome weekend because we're starting a new series that we're going to be in for, for actually for quite a while. Uh, last week, we actually talked about this a little bit, and we said that we're going to be going through uh, the Gospel of Luke. Luke is a New Testament book, and uh, we're really going to be journeying through this pretty much from Christmas all the way up until Easter, going to be kind of working our way through that. And um, so if you've never read through the Gospel of Luke, the Gospel of Luke is essentially uh, an outline of the entire life of Jesus. It starts with his birth, and then, of course, it ends with his death, burial, resurrection, and everything in between. And so we're just excited to have a chance to kind of journey through that together over the next coming weeks here, uh, here at Grace at the Medina East Campus. And so super, super excited about that. Now, I know some of you might be saying, okay, so new year, new series, Gospel of Luke. Uh, why exactly are we looking at this? And why are we going through this now? Why is it, why is it a good time for us to go through uh, the Gospel of Luke? And just to recap a little bit of what we said at Christmas Eve, if you, if you missed that, uh, basically we said a few things. We said that um, the Gospel of Luke, the, this, this book that we're gonna be looking at, the purpose is actually that we might gain certainty regarding the things taught about Jesus. And so last week, uh, basically, we, when we started looking at Luke, we said that uh, the gospel of Luke is actually written for a very specific purpose. And we're actually told this purpose. He, Luke actually expresses this in Luke chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. This is what he says. He says, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning... I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, uh, here's the purpose, so that you may know the certainty of the things that you have been taught. And so we actually, again, kind of started looking at that at, on Christmas Eve, but basically we said that the reason that Luke writes this, he writes to this guy named Theophilus, and we mentioned him a little bit last week, but we said the reason that Luke writes this is so that his readers might gain certainty about the things that they've been taught, specifically about Jesus. And so what's the purpose of Luke? Here's the purpose. It's that we might be certain about the things about Jesus. That's why this gospel is written. And, uh, and so Luke wants us to know that the things about Jesus, his life, his birth, his death, burial, resurrection, uh, these things are not fictitious. These things are not fabricated. Uh, these things are real and they are reliable. We talked about how Luke actually writes as a meticulous historian, uh, we said that Luke is actually going to show how the events of Jesus' life happened in time and space and history, unlike any other book uh, that we see in the New Testament of the Bible. And so because of that, the purpose of Luke is that we can gain certainty about the things of Jesus. Now, here's why we said that that's very significant for us. We said, first off, that is very logically significant. To gain certainty about the things of Jesus is logically significant. How so? Last week, here's what we said. We said that Christianity, unlike any other world religion, one of the things that really sets it apart is that Christianity is not actually built upon a teaching. So Christianity is not foundationally, contrary to what some people might say, it's actually not built on a teaching. Christianity rises and falls on a person. 
And specifically, it's the person of Jesus Christ, the things that he claimed about himself and the things that the Bible say about him, about his birth, life, death, resurrection, all of those things. So here's, here's why this is logically significant. If those things about Jesus are exaggerations or are fabrications or are fictitious, well, then all of Christianity crumbles because all of Christianity is built on this person, Jesus, and the claims that he made about himself. So this is logically significant for those who follow Jesus, which is maybe many of us, and also for those who are investigating Jesus, which might be you as well, as you're kind of going through this together. So logically significant. We also said this is personally significant, personally significant. So the fact that Luke wants us to know that this Jesus stuff is real is very significant because what he's trying to tell us is that the hope in the life that's found in Jesus is something that is sturdy, is something that is substantial, and is something that is firm. Luke wants us to know that following Jesus is not just a self-help movement. It's not just built on positive thinking. That's not what this is. Christianity is built on the certainty of the things about Jesus. And here's what we said. We said, this is a really important time for us to be certain about the things of Jesus because in a world where there is a lot of uncertainty that surrounds us, where there is so much confusion and so much uncertainty, we need to anchor our hearts to something that is certain. And that's what Luke is helping us to understand as we read through this book. So last week at Christmas Eve, we actually uh, put an invitation out to everyone. And for some of us, we even said, here's a challenge. We wanna encourage everyone to read through the Gospel of Luke as we're journeying through this series. Some of you have started uh, doing that. Maybe you've picked up one of the reading plans from the Welcome Center, or you've went on, online and got a Luke reading plan. If you didn't do that yet, it is not too late. We would love for you to jump in, start reading the Gospel of Luke. Uh, at our Welcome Center, there's resources. Kevin mentioned those. There's reading plans that are free. Or if you go to our website, medinaeast.gracechurches.org backslash Luke, you're gonna find all this stuff about the Gospel of Luke. You'll also find that on our main page and you can grab those things too. Tons of resources, the reading plan, commentaries, all that kind of stuff. We just want to resource you as you're journeying through and uh, going through this gospel with us. So excited about this series. Today, uh, as we kind of jump into the gospel of Luke and really kind of dig at it, uh, I wanna invite you to grab your Bibles. And if you would, let's go to Luke chapter two. So let's just go ahead and look at Luke chapter two here together today. Uh, if you would get in your Bibles, open those up. If you did not bring a Bible with you, uh, if you wanna grab one from under the chair, page 832 is where that's at. And of course, we always say this, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one of those home, uh, make that a gift from us to you. I promise you, if you walk out with one of our Bibles, the security team won't tackle you. Um, and so you can do that. We'd love for you to, to do that. So Luke 2. And um, last week, we started looking at Luke 1 a little bit on Christmas Eve. Today, we're going to look at, at Luke chapter 2. Now, what we're going to see in Luke chapter 2 is this passage is a passage that's probably familiar to a lot of us. And the reason it's familiar is because this passage is conventionally thought of as a Christmas passage. This is a Christmas, Christmas verses that we see in the Bible. And I know what, what some of you are going to be thinking. As we read this, some of you are going to be thinking, dude, this is a Christmas passage. And Christmas was like, that was like last week. That was like last year. Like you're kind of late to the game, bro. And some of you are already done with Christmas. Some of you are already taking your tree down. And you're just like, I'm so done with Christmas. Why are we reading a Christmas passage? And, and let me just say, um, I'm, I'm well aware that what we're gonna read is conventionally a Christmas passage, but I'm actually really thankful that we're reading it now that Christmas is over. And here's why. Because my hope is that as we're reading it now, we will read it with a fresh set of eyes. We'll read it with a different mindset. So here, here's, here's what I think can happen. Sometimes when we read passages about the birth of Jesus, 
only during Christmas time. We can read them as an end in themselves. And so we can read them, Jesus was born. We can, on Christmas, we can read Luke 1 and 2. And then we put it away and we, we fail to recognize that there are 22 other chapters in the gospel of Luke. And so my, my heart and my hope today is that we will see and we'll read this story not as an end in itself, but that we'll see the birth of Jesus as an introduction to some of the major themes that we're gonna see throughout his life and his ministry and specifically in the gospel of Luke. All right, so that's what we're gonna be kind of looking at here today. So what are we gonna find in Luke chapter two? Well, interestingly, in Luke 1, which comes right before Luke chapter 2, uh, the Bible is going to tell us before Jesus was born, um, there was this, this, this really fascinating interaction that Mary had with an angel. So the Bible is going to tell us that Mary had an angelic visitation, which is just crazy. But I want you to notice what the angel tells Mary. So this is in Luke 1. The angel comes to Mary and, and he says, don't be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God and you're gonna conceive and give birth to a son and you're to call him Jesus. So the angel tells her about the events that are about to unfold. But here's what I want you to notice. Notice what the angel says about Jesus, about this child, about this son that's going to be born. Here's what the angel says. The angel says that Jesus is going to be great. He's going to be great. And then he says this, and he's gonna be called the son of the most high. Uh, In other words, the son of God. He's going to be the son of God. Then the angel says, he's going to, the Lord God is going to give him the throne of his father, David, and he's going to reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. Now, I know for some of you, you might read that and you might be like, there's some stuff I don't understand in there. I don't really know who David is. I don't know who Jacob is. And, and let me just say that if you're not familiar with that, just forget that for a minute. That's all Old Testament references. But what I want you to, to focus on with me is notice the impressive claims that the angel is saying about this Jesus. He's gonna be great. He is gonna be a king. He's gonna sit on a throne and he's gonna establish a kingdom that's never gonna end. He's gonna be the son of God. This is what the angel, now I'm just saying, these are some impressive things that the angel is saying about this Jesus. Now, what's gonna happen in Luke, in t- Luke chapter two? Well, here's what's gonna happen in Luke two. I think that Luke is gonna help us really kind of answer some questions about what this, what this king is gonna look like. So specifically, I think there's three questions that Luke is gonna help us think through. So number one, I think Luke is gonna help us answer, what is this kingdom like? Okay, so this Jesus is gonna be great. He's gonna be the son of God. He's gonna be a king. He's gonna have a kingdom that lasts forever. What's that kingdom gonna be like? I think he's gonna help us really shed some light on that. Number two, I think he's gonna help us shed light on who is the kingdom for? Okay, so this is a king bringing a kingdom. So who is this kingdom for? Who's invited to be part of this kingdom? Uh, who, is, who is this kingdom extended to? I think that's, he's gonna help us answer that. And then lastly, I think he's gonna help us answer this question, how do you enter into this kingdom? How do you gain access to the kingdom? I think he's gonna shed light on those three questions. So let's think about those together. The first one, uh, what's this kingdom like? What's it like? So I want you to notice Luke chapter two, verse one. Notice how he, Luke starts the birth story of Jesus. He says this, In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So I want you to notice when Luke begins the story of Jesus' birth, we talked about this last week, that he starts as a meticulous historian. 
So he's helping us anchor the birth of Jesus in time and space and history. But I want you to notice that when he tells us the story of Jesus's birth, he actually doesn't start by talking about Jesus. He starts by mentioning this dude right here, this guy, Caesar Augustus. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, Caesar Augustus, who's that? What do we know about Caesar Augustus? Well, some of you might actually remember if you've ever studied history or Roman history, a little bit about him. Uh, He was also known as Octavian, and he would have been the emperor of Rome during the time of Jesus's birth. Let me just say that without a doubt, when a first century reader would have heard this name, what would have come to their mind was the images, all of the images of power and glory that you could imagine in a person's mind. Without, and I, without exaggeration, and I, I just mean this, this was just true. From an earthly standpoint, Caesar Augustus was the most powerful man in the world at that time. Rome was the mega power of the world, and Caesar Augustus was the guy who ruled it, ruled it all. In fact, I love the way one historian put it. Uh, this guy was viewed so highly uh, by the people in that time. One historian says that he was flattered by the Roman Senate as a son of God and hailed by the poet Virgil as the son of the deified who would make a golden age again. He was so powerful that people actually said that he was a god. They actually believed that in some ways that he himself was the son of deity. Now, why did they believe that? Well, in a lot of ways, Caesar Augustus was the epitome of human ambition and earthly power. Uh, He was born from an elite lineage. Uh, We're actually told that he was the nephew of the very famous uh, Julius Caesar, And uh, later on in life, he actually was adopted by Julius Caesar. So he came from just royal blood, royal line. In addition to that, he gained unfathomable power for himself through position by unparalleled military strength. This guy, man, you read about him in in history books. He was one bad mamma jamma. That's what the history books say about him. And he just was, he was forceful in military might. And he was just, I mean, the epitome of human ambition and all of those type of things. In addition to that, the Bible's gonna tell us that in those days, Caesar Augustus was issuing a decree that a census would be taken of the Roman world. Now, of course, the census, that would have been a way for him to measure his whole world dominion. In other words, what this was for him is it was an inventory to see how awesome he was. That's what this was. And so Caesar Augustus is probably like, I'm awesome. Let's just take a quick inventory to just see exactly how awesome I am And that's how this birth narrative starts. Now, I want you to compare that. Okay, so he's gonna start talking about Caesar Augustus. Now compare that with what we're about to be told about the newborn baby who is the promised one to come. So notice this. So Joseph, so the camera pans now to Joseph and Mary. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth and Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem the town of David, because he belonged to the house of the line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Now, what I want you to see with me as we look at these verses and the ones that come after it is that everything about the birth narrative of Jesus is encased in just an absurd amount of humility. I just want you to see this with me. I want you to observe with me the amount of humility in humble circumstances that the birth of Jesus is encased in. So first off, you're gonna see that Jesus was born into a very humble uh, to a very humble family and really in many ways into a very turbulent time uh, in his family structure. And so uh, first off, the Bible is gonna talk here about Joseph. Now we know a little bit about Joseph. We actually don't know a ton, but we know that Joseph was uh, Jesus's father, his earthly father. He was not his biological father, but he would have been the one 
who would have raised Jesus. And uh, we know that Joseph, even though he was from the lineage of King David hundreds of years before, he himself was a simple blue collar worker. He was a carpenter. We also know that he was engaged to Mary. Uh, Mary, scholars would say at this time, was probably a teenager. And of course, she discovered that she was pregnant through the angel, which would have introduced all kinds of disruption and turbulence into their life. Joseph and Mary were engaged. They were not yet married. And of course, her being pregnant outside of wedlock, that would have been viewed very unfavorably back in this time. And so can you just imagine, imagine that already the disruption that this was in their life, imagine they already were in a place of a time of stress. And then on top of that, the Bible says that now there's this census. There's this census. Now, I just want to tell you that this census, it's hard for you and I to appreciate how unbelievably inconvenient this would have been for everybody, but specifically for this family. I think the best analogy I can come up with is, did you guys ever get a letter like from the IRS or something? And it's just like, or even better, did you guys ever get like a jury duty, like a call to jury duty? And you were like, well, I guess everything that I planned for that week of my life is gone. I guess I'm doing this now. Like everything else is gonna stop because I gotta do this. Now it was like that times a thousand. Uh, because back in this time when they would take a census, what it required was that everyone had to go back to the hometown, their hometown of origin. So you'd have to drop whatever you were doing, travel all the way back to your hometown. Then you had to give an account, not just for the people in your family, but also for all of your business dealings and all of your possessions deeply inconvenient. And on top of that, notice the Bible says that these guys had to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem. Now, I know for you and I, we can read right past that and not think twice about it. But man, this is a, this is a ridiculous, a ridiculously inconvenient thing in the midst of all this stressful stuff that's already happening in their life. Do you guys know how far Nazareth is from Bethlehem? Here's just a map I'll show you. Here's Nazareth, here's Bethlehem. So you're like, that doesn't look very far. It's like the size of your hand. That's not very far. You know how far that is? That's a 90-mile trek. 90 miles. In the middle of winter, which in this region of the world, it probably would have been mid-30s, 40s in that time. Uh, Mary was in her third trimester, a 90-mile trek. Um, commentators will point out it's 70 miles as the crow flies, but they're not crows. They're people who have to go up and down mountains and such. And so this was totally inconvenient, completely disruptive to them. And I just, just get this in your mind. Here is this perplexed, pregnant, newly engaged couple who's just trying to figure it out and just trying to be obedient to God. And now they have to travel 90 miles to do this census thing down in Bethlehem. And listen, here's my point. This is the family and the situation that this son of God was going to be born into. Not quite what you would imagine when you think of one who's great, when you think of one who's a king, when you think of one whose kingdom is gonna last forever. Not only was he born into a humble family situation though, notice this, he also was born into a humble city. The Bible's gonna say that the place that Jesus was born is he was born in Bethlehem. Now, what do we know about Bethlehem? Well, very little. And why do we know very little about Bethlehem? Because it was very little. It was very little. It wasn't a city, it was a town. To call Bethlehem a city would be like calling Sterling a city. Did you guys ever go to Sterling? If you blink, you're past it. You're just like, was that it? Oh, that was it. I saw a couple cows and a guy. You're like, yep, that's Sterling. And that's, that was Bethlehem. 
Same idea, very small, very, very small place. In fact, uh, the prophets actually said in Micah chapter five, it says, but you, O Bethlehem, you're only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel is gonna come from you, one whose origins are from the distant past. And so the Bible, here's my point. Look, Jesus, the great one, son of God, right? The, the king who's gonna sit on a throne, he wasn't born in Rome, which was the political center of the world at that time. He wasn't born in Jerusalem, which was the religious center, at least for the Jewish people at that time. Where was he born? He was born in Bethlehem, a humble, single-story skyline little town is what he was born into. And not just that, not just a humble family, not just a humble circumstance, not just a humble town. Look at the next thing. I was gonna say, while they were there in Bethlehem, the time came for the baby to be born and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and she placed him in a manger because there wasn't even guest room available for them. And so not only in Bethlehem, but notice the Bible says that, that there wasn't room. So most likely, we can, probably, uh, just, we can probably just assume that Bethlehem was fuller than it usually was because of, the, because of the census. So people had to travel from all over the place. So there was no rooms. There was nowhere to stay. And so because of that, Mary and Joseph were forced to give birth in, in this manger scene. And... Um, you know, I think for some of us, when we, when we think about this, the picture that comes to our minds, we tend to think of our nativity set. Some of you guys still have your nativity set set up. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. Commentators actually have a lot of different opinions of what the original manger scene would have actually looked like. And there's different opinions about it. Some people would say that Jesus was born in a cave. It was more like that. Actually, like the way one commentator put it, I think that he's got a really viable uh, option here. Here's what he said. This is uh, N.T. Wright in his commentary on Luke, which by the way, is available on that website with the resources. It's, it's great, great commentary. But he says this, he says, most likely the manger would have been on the ground floor of a house where people normally stayed upstairs. The ground floor would often be used for animals, hence the manger or feeding trough, which came in handy for the baby. So what he's saying is basically like this. He's saying that the manger was actually a lot more like a first century garage. And so the people would have lived on the second floor. The bottom floor is where you kept all your, your cattle and those kind of things and stuff like that. And he said that the baby most likely would have been put into a trough, a feeding trough. And it's actually interesting. If you go back, uh, archaeologists still find these things all over the place. Here's what a, a first century feeding trough would have looked like made out of stone. And this is where Jesus would have been placed in a place, place like this. Now, what, what is all this saying? Well, I think what Luke is trying to show us is this, that whoever this king is, and whatever he is like, whatever his kingdom is like, it is paradoxically different, completely and totally different than, than the kingdoms and the kings of this, the world that we know. This is, this is a kingdom that is paradoxically opposite of what we tend to think when we think of greatness and we think of power. It's very, very opposite of the way we tend to think. In fact, I like the way um, in one book, it's called Luke for You, I like the way the author puts it. He says that the opening chapter here in chapter two, the opening verses, he said, they put us on a downward spiral of earthly power and influence. Here's what he says. I think this is so great. He says, in verse one, we're told about Augustus. Who's Augustus? Uh, the most powerful person in the known world at that time, the embodiment of ruthless power and privilege. And then you have, who's next? Quirinius. Who's Quirinius? Well, not the most powerful guy in the world, but he was a regional governor, which is pretty substantial. And then you have Joseph. Who's Joseph? Well, he was a blue-collar worker, but he was a free man. And then after that, you have who? You have Mary, who was an unmarried pregnant woman. 
And then lastly, you have the baby. And then he concludes by saying this. He says, it'd be hard to imagine a less powerful, less privileged person on the planet at that moment than this infant sleeping in a feeding trough. Everything in these opening verses points to how lowly the baby was. Luke is trying to communicate something to us. And I think he's trying to tell us something about this king and about this kingdom. This is a king and a kingdom that's marked by humility. That's marked by humility. I love um, in... um, Philip Yancey, in 1995, wrote a bestseller called The Jesus I Never Knew. It's a phenomenal book. And in it, he actually talks about how on one occasion, Queen Elizabeth II visited the United States. And this is what he said. He said, Queen Elizabeth II had recently visited the US and reporters delighted in spelling out the logistics involved. Her 4,000 pounds of luggage included two outfits for every occasion. A mourning outfit, in case someone died, 40 pints of plasma, and white leather toilet seat covers. He goes on, he says this, she brought along her own hairdresser, two valets, and a host of other attendants. A brief visit of royalty to a foreign country can easily cost $20 million. And he goes on, he says this, in meek contrast, God's visit to the earth took place in an animal shelter with no attendants present and nowhere to lay the newborn king but a feed trough. Indeed, the event that divided history and even our calendars into two parts may have had more animal than human witnesses. I think that's really well put. It's a really powerful observation. The irony is palpable. Here's Caesar Augustus, who is the epitome of human strength and power, who is surrounded by a palace in opulence with a royal lineage. And then here's this baby who couldn't have a more humble origin, and yet... And yet, the kingdom of King Jesus has far outstretched and outstripped the glories of Rome. And what's Luke telling us? He's at least telling us this, that when Jesus came, that he came to turn the whole world order upside down. So what's this kingdom like? Well, this kingdom is a kingdom that's marked by humility. It is an upside down kingdom, which begs the next question, well, then who's it for? Who Who is a kingdom like this for? I love this next part. I love this next part. Look what the Bible says. And there were shepherds that were living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that's going to cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This is going to be a sign to you. You're going to find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those to whom his favor rests. Now, I know for many of us, these verses are very familiar, right? We've we've heard these, these are Christmas verses. And I think that's awesome. But I think the unfortunate part of that is sometimes our familiarity with these verses for some of us, I think it can cause us to miss how absolutely scandalous this scene would have been. When heaven decided to announce the birth and the arrival of its king to this earth, who was that birth announcement given to? The Bible's gonna say it was given first and foremost to shepherds. Now, I'm just telling you, this would have been so, so scandalous to anyone who would have been reading this in the first century. You know, I think for a lot of us, when we think of shepherds, uh, maybe the picture that comes in our mind is we think of the kids' books uh, we think of the nativity sets. We think of, uh, and a lot of times in the kids' books, the shepherds are always these kind of joyful, kind, huggable, lovable uh, people. So when I think of uh, like a, a, some of the shepherds that we see in our society today, I think of uh, like this guy, you know, like 
get these little kid shepherd books, and he's, what is he? He's like, oh, he's cute. You know, he's huggable, he's cuddly, he's joyful, that kind of thing. And I just want to say that that's fine. That's fine when you're telling kids about the thing. But um, in reality, in the first century, it could not have been further from this kind of image right here. In the first century, shepherds were of very, very low social ranking. See, back in the first century, rabbis and religious leaders essentially had a list. And they had a list of the people that God accepted and the people that God did not accept, people that God rejected. And of course, this wasn't a list that came from the Bible. This was just a list that came from the religious leaders at that time. But you know who would have been on that list? Who would have been on that list are people like tax collectors. Tax collectors were considered people who were rejected by God. Uh, prostitutes would have been on that list for sure. The Romans were on that list. Samaritans were on that list. Michigan fans uh, were on that list. Even though that was 2,000 years ago, they somehow knew and they, they figured that out. But do you know who else was on that list? Shepherds were on that list. Shepherds were on that list. Now, why were shepherds on that? Why were shepherds considered as lowly and unacceptable as prostitutes and tax collectors? And here's why. A lot of it was because of their type of work. And so for shepherds, what they did is they were nomadic. They lived among animals. And so they were considered unclean. In fact, a shepherd would look nothing like this. A shepherd back in that time looked more, probably more like something like this. Be the kind of guy that if you saw him, you would want your kids to walk on the other side of the road. Probably didn't smell too good. And uh, these guys, basically, they lived in the fields among animals. They would have been considered unclean, which meant they could never enter the temple. They could never worship God in the temple. And it also meant that they could not testify in court. And so because of that, these guys were poorly treated by the wealthy. They were poorly treated by the socially privileged and especially by the religious community. And, you know, let me, let me just say for just, just a moment here that uh, the Bible's gonna tell us that when the angels appeared to these guys, I want you to notice the response. The Bible says that when the angels appeared, they were terrified. The shepherds were terrified. That was their response. Now, let me, let me just speculate for a moment. Why were they terrified? Now, I, I think, and I'm just guessing, I think there might have been a couple of reasons. The first, off, the first reason is this, is because angels just appeared to them in the middle of the night. And I'm just guessing, that probably had to have been pretty trippy. Like, my guess is that they're probably sitting in the field, and they see this thing happen, and they're probably like, dude, are you seeing this too? Like, did you slip some mushrooms in my soup earlier? Because I don't know. So I'm guessing part of the reason they were terrified is because this was crazy. But can I, can I just speculate? I think there might've been another reason they were terrified. My guess is this. If this is a group of people who their whole life have been told that they're unacceptable by God, and now heaven is showing up to tell them something, my guess is that these guys are probably pretty confident that if God has something to say to them, that it's nothing good, that it's nothing good. Now, I just wanna hit pause for a minute. I know we've been talking a lot about people back 2,000 years ago. Let me just talk to the people in this room real quick and to maybe those who are watching on live stream as well. Maybe for some of us, we can relate with the shepherds a little bit. And maybe for you, part of your story or part of your past is one that makes you feel very uncomfortable in settings like this. Maybe you're a person who looks around and you're like, I see all these other people here and it seems like they're all fine and good, but you don't know my story. And I don't, I, feel, I don't feel like I belong in a setting like this. Or maybe for you, you're the kind of person who you're like, this is the first time I stepped foot in a church in X amount of years and I'm surprised the building hasn't come and fall down on me. Or maybe you're the kind of person that if you were to wake up in the middle of the night and God was to give you a message, you're convinced that if God had something to say to you, 
but it basically would be something about his disappointment or his frustration with you. And I just, I just want you to just take note. Take note that when the God of the universe decided to announce the arrival of his Messiah and his king, he gave that birth announcement, listen, not to the priests, not to the religious leaders, not, not to the kings, not to the dignitaries. Who was the birth announcement extended to? To the shepherds, to the shepherds. Does that not say something about the heart and the character of God? Who, who is this kingdom for? Who is this kingdom for? Well, I'll tell you who it's for. It's for everybody, even the outcasts, even the broken, even those who are considered unacceptable to God by everybody else. This is a kingdom that's for everyone. It's just like the shepherd says, I have good news, not bad news. I got good news for all, for all people. You know, I love this passage because it's telling us God's posture towards humanity. And what is it? Well, look, look what verse 14 says. The angel said, glory to God in the highest heaven on earth, peace to those to whom his favor rests. You guys, the word favor is so awesome. You know what the word favor is? In the original Greek language, it means the state or condition of being kindly disposed. It's a desire for or an interest in goodness. In other words, why did God send his son? Why did he do it? Well, part of the reason the Bible's gonna tell us is that he's trying to show us that he is not automatically opposed to humanity. He's not. The disposition towards God, towards us, is one that he desires our goodness. He wants a relationship with us. And that is built through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. I love the way one author put it. He said it this way. At the heart of the gospel, of gospel joy, which gospel, by the way, is just the good news about Jesus. He says, at the heart of gospel joy are the twin realizations that number one, we are not the kind of people who deserve God's love. In fact, it turns out that there aren't any of those kinds of people. And number two, that in his great love, God has sent his salvation to people just like us anyway. That's the gospel. That's the good news. The good news, and we say it here at Grace like this, we are more messed up than we think we are. We are all more messed up than we think we are, including and especially the guy on the stage. But we are more acceptable. Than we, we are more accepted by God than we can imagine because of his gift that he's given us in his son, Jesus Christ. So, what is this kingdom like? It's a kingdom that's marked by humility. It's an upside down kingdom. Who's it for? It's for everybody. So that begs the question, well, then how is it entered? How do we gain access to this kingdom? Well, I think Luke's, Luke's gonna shed some light on this. Look at verse 15. It says, when the angels had left them and they'd gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger and when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary, she treasured up all these things and she pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And I want you to notice in this passage, the Bible's gonna tell us how the shepherds and how Mary responded. The Bible's gonna say that the shepherds, they rejoiced, they were glorifying and praising God. In other words, what did they do? Well, they embraced this. They embraced this king. They embraced this kingdom. They embraced, they embraced it with all their heart. And what about Mary? The Bible says that Mary treasured up all these things and she pondered them in her heart. I actually love the way that's phrased. Isn't that so interesting, the way it says it? She pondered these things in her heart. It doesn't say she pondered them in her mind. She pondered them in her heart. 
What does that even mean? I think that means that she internalized these things. She treasured these things. She's in, she embraced these things in, in, in her own heart. And so what do we see with the shepherds and Mary? These were the people who embraced this king, who embraced this kingdom. However, I think the truth is, if, if you guys know the Christmas story, this was not the way most people interacted with the birth of Jesus. In fact, we're told some people, uh, they felt threatened by the birth of Jesus. Herod, uh, the Bible tells us that Herod felt threatened when he heard that there was a Messiah who had come, so threatened that he went on a killing rampage and tried to kill out this newborn baby. Most people, however, the way they responded was they just were completely oblivious to what was going on, just totally oblivious. Now, can I tell you what I think is maybe just one of the, maybe one of the saddest scenes in this whole story is one of the most sobering scenes is when Mary and Joseph come into Bethlehem and they're unable to find a place to give birth to this newborn king. And literally, the reason that they're, they're unable to find a place is because everybody was preoccupied. Literally, they were, pre, they were already occupied. And meanwhile, the, the birth of King Jesus was happening. And listen, I can't help but wonder if this is not a snapshot, an intentional snapshot that's given to speak to, to many, many, many of us of, of how sometimes we can miss the free gift that God has. For many of us, we are just preoccupied. So many are just preoccupied. So many competing interests, so many competing agendas, so many competing things that are trying to steal our attention. Sometimes it's hard to make time or to see our need for Jesus. Here's what I've come to believe when I read this passage. It takes a humble heart. It takes a humble heart to embrace the humble king. Who enters the kingdom? I think, I think it's the kingdom is for everybody, but it takes, it takes someone who's in a posture of humility to embrace this. You know, it's interesting. I don't know if you guys have ever noticed this, but in the Bible, God has a thing for humility. Whereas many of us in our world today view humility as a weakness, God views it as an incredible strength. Look what the Bible's gonna say. The Bible's gonna say, God opposes the proud but he gives grace to the humble. James 4 says, humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. God loves humility. And why? Why does God view this as a virtue when so many other people view this as a flaw or as a weakness? And can I tell you what I think it is? Here's why I think God loves humility so much. I think the reason is because when we are pushed into a place of humility, we are positioned in such a way that we can recognize our great need. It's only when we're in a place where we're humbled, where we become hungry for something different. I can just tell you, you can probably imagine as a pastor, I get a chance to hear and see a lot of people uh, go from a place of, of not believing in Jesus to putting their faith in Christ. I've, I've seen that many, many, many times. And can I just tell you that for the most part, not entirely, but for the most part, the story that I hear of a person who went from not believing to a place of embracing Jesus and becoming a Christ follower, the story is actually very consistent. And it usually goes something like this. Usually it goes something like this. Now the facts and the details change, but it usually is something like this. I was going through life. Everything was smooth sailing. I had a plan. Everything was working according to plan. I had an idea. Everything was working. I had an agenda. It was all happening. But then all of a sudden, a boulder fell on my life. Now, let me just say that the name of the boulder uh, might change. So for some people, it was the divorce, or for some people, it was the diagnosis, or for some people, it was the loss, or the loss of my job, or a pandemic, or an existential crisis. Whatever the boulder is, you can put your own name on it, but usually it goes something like this. I was going through life, 
Everything was fine. A boulder smashed in my life. And all of a sudden, I was put in a place of great humility, and I realized I needed something. And then I heard about Jesus. And I'd heard about Jesus a million times before, but for some reason, this time, I was open to it. Now, why is that? Well, here's why. I think it takes a humble heart to embrace the humble king. I think this is why Jesus says stuff like this. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Why? Theirs is the kingdom of God because the kingdom belongs to them and they're open to it. So how do you enter this kingdom? By faith and humility. Listen, just think about it. To call Jesus savior, to do that, that necessitates that we have to admit that there's something that we need to be saved from. And that requires humility. To say that Jesus is our king, that means that you have to acknowledge that you are not the one who is most qualified to lead and run your life. And that takes an unbelievable amount of humility. So as we wrap up today, let me just think through what are some implications based on what we read here in Luke 2 that we can glean from today's conversation. So for us today, what can we glean from what we just read in Luke chapter 2? Let me just say a few things. Implication number one. I think that what we see in this is the humility of Jesus reveals something to us about God and his character. The humility of Jesus tells us something about God. Listen, if this is the way, if this is the way that God decided to introduce his Messiah into the world, if this was the way that he just, he could have done it any way he wanted to, but the fact that he chose it this way, I think that tells us something about what he's like. And it tells us something about his character. It tells us a lot of things, but I think it at least tells us this, that he wants to be with us, that God's, that God's disposition towards us is one that he wants our, he wants our good and that he is a God who's willing to serve to initiate a relationship with us. I love the way the Bible puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter eight. It says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, how rich, how rich was Jesus? All the glories of heaven were his. How rich was Jesus? All things were made by him, through him, for him, and in him. It's what Colossians 1 says. And yet he stripped himself of those things and for our sake became poor, so that, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Listen, here's what I believe. I believe that when you consider the heights of heaven and you consider the lowly manger that he came to and then ultimately the cross that he died on, the distance between the highest heaven and the lowness of the cross reveals to us the magnitude and the distance of God's glory and his love and his grace for us. How far was he willing to go to initiate a relationship with us? I think we can see that. Here's the second implication, the second implication. History's headlines are heaven's footnotes. History's headlines, the headlines that we see at any given time in history become the footnotes in heaven's plan. Listen, can I just tell you, one of the things that blows me away in this passage is when you see things like Caesar Augustus and the census of Rome and Quirinius, and these, these mega powers that would have been, at that time, that would have made all of the news headlines. You know, I don't know if back in the first century, if they had news like we have it today. I, I know they didn't have social media. I'm guessing they didn't have, you know, social, you know, news networks or anything like that, which is probably actually better for them. Uh, they probably didn't have, you know, any of that kind of stuff. But I can't help but wonder if back in the first century, if they did, if they had news networks and they had social media and they had those kind of things, can you imagine what would have been in the headlines? What was it that was competing for people's attention in that time? I'm just guessing, but I'm guessing that like BuzzFeed 
would probably come out with an article in that time that was like 20 ways to, you know, survive the census traveling, blah, 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 you know, and that kind of thing. I'm guessing that if there was news networks, what would be on the headlines would be things about the political tensions between Rome and the Jewish people, which, by the way, there was incredible political tensions between those two people groups. Um, my guess is that the news would probably have articles about Caesar Augustus and Quirinius and their new palaces and all that kind of stuff. I'm guessing that would have been on the headlines. That would have been the thing everyone was talking about. Everyone was getting ready for the census. That would have been so disruptive to everyone. That would have been the thing that they were talking about. But you know what? It would have never made any of the news or it wouldn't have been on the social media websites. It would have been the birth of Jesus. And yet, here's what blows me away. 2,000 years later, if I was to go out in the street and I was just to ask the average person, hey, have you ever heard of Quirinius? Did you ever hear about the census, the first census that took place when Quirinius was governor? They would have no idea what I was talking about for the most part. And my guess is if they had heard of that, it would only be because they recognized it as a footnote in the story of King Jesus. Listen, here's my point. If that was true then, I think it only stands to reason that that's probably true today. That the things that are so stressful to us, the things that are so disruptive to us, the tensions that we see in social media and news feeds and everything else, listen, we can, I think what, this, what Luke is telling us is we can be confident of this, that there is a God who sovereignly uses all things to accomplish his plans and that the, that the, the headlines of history will always become footnotes in the story of God's plan. And I think we can be confident of that. I think this story is telling us that. And here's the last thing. And with this, I'll invite the band to come up. I think this is telling us to never underestimate the power of humility. Never underestimate the power of humility. Not only is this, not only is this Luke chapter two telling us about a humble king and a humble kingdom, but I think it's also an invitation for the people of God themselves to practice the same heart and the same mentality of humility. Philippians chapter two says it, that we should take on the same attitude in our relationships with each other as that of Christ Jesus. And so I think what this is telling us is we should never underestimate the power of humility in our marriages, in our relationships, in the workplace, in our interactions with other people. We should never underestimate the power of humility. Listen, I know, like I said, for so many people, we view humility as weakness. And maybe even some of us, maybe even some of us who follow Jesus, we've said to ourselves, well, I've tried going the humble route. In my marriage, in this relationship, in this friendship, in this one argument I'm having, I've tried going the humble route, but I'm just telling you, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. And if you really wanna get things done, man, you gotta just, you gotta pull yourself up and you gotta stand up for yourself and you gotta push and it's just, you gotta look out for number one and that's the way you get things done. And I've tried the humble route and it doesn't work. Let me just say, take note of this. Look at Mary and look at Joseph. Here are two humble people who wanna be humbly obedient to Jesus, who wanna be humbly obedient to God's will for them. And notice that their dedication to humble obedience didn't make their lives easier. It made their lives more challenging. And yet, and yet, I would say that in the time of their life, there was the most confusion and there was the most stress and it was the most disruptive. Notice that this was a time that arguably God used them the most. And so I think we can have confidence. Don't ever underestimate the power of humility. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I think this is an invitation, not only to embrace the humble king and his humble kingdom, but to embrace the humble way that he offers us as well.
So what kind of kingdom is it? It's a kingdom that's marked by humility. Who's it for? It's for everyone, even the lowly. And how do you enter it? I think you enter with a humble heart. It takes a humble heart to embrace the humble king. Let's pray. Well, Jesus, I wanna say thank you for just revealing yourself through the word. Thank you for just the way that you entered into the human situation. And uh, it's honestly, it's refreshing. It's so paradigm shifting. It's so paradoxical to the way that we define greatness, but it's so refreshing and it's so relieving. Thank you that you came as a king, but you also came as a king who was wanting to serve, who was willing to serve. Thank you that you love us so much, that your disposition towards us is one of grace. And I ask you that even today that we could be like Mary, help us to ponder in our hearts the things that we've heard here today, to internalize them and to treasure them. We just wanna ask this in Jesus' name.